As I mentioned to you earlier, especially if you are not a regular attender here, we are working our way together as a church family through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And the next verses that we prepared to cover this week were on avoiding sexual temptation and coveting, which are relevant for us, but it felt like with all that we are facing right now as a larger church family that we should change course a bit and be honest about our grief, but not only be honest about it, allow ourselves to look to God who alone can meet us in our grief and is the answer for our deepest sorrows. And so today, we are going to come together to Psalm 139. And to summarize this chapter in a title, I think the basic teaching, the basic thing that we should come away with from Psalm 139 is that we are never alone. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety, and we'll work our way through it, being honest about the grief of our world and how God Himself is the answer to all of our grief. So let us find here together today in Psalm 139 that we indeed are never alone. This is God's Word. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. 
and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. May God bless to us the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we are in desperate need today to have our grief and our sorrow, our pain, our bewilderment, our confusion, the darkness around us addressed. And we are grateful that Your Word, given to us as a gift, addresses this. We are thankful that Your Word is honest about struggle and trial and sorrow and grief. We are grateful that You do not leave us there, but You point us to Yourself, the One who is with us, the One who promises us that we are never alone. And so today, our Father, we are not alone. And I pray that You would prove that because we all doubt it. Prove to us today that we are not alone, for You are with us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So again, I believe that this title, Never Alone, encapsulates the central teaching, the central truth of this passage. David, who wrote it, fundamentally understood this. From when David was a young man, he faced trial. From when David was a young man, he understood what it meant to be vulnerable in a hostile world. He fought off wild animals that could have killed him, eaten him, protecting his sheep for his father. After being anointed, he went through a period of great confusion, for he did not immediately ascend to the throne, but the king that he was charged with serving until he ascended to the throne wanted to kill him and chased him all around the promised land seeking to end his life. He had wives turn their backs on him. He had children turn their backs on him and seek to take his throne. He committed awful sin, high-level sin, like adultery, and for all intents and purposes had the blood of another man on his hands to cover it up. He disobeyed God, acting often faithlessly and pridefully. He lost a child for his sin and almost lost the kingdom because of his sin. And the volatility of the lifestyle of his son Solomon, who would ascend to the throne, would indicate to us that he picked up on some of the best from his father and some of the worst. David knew what it was like because of his own sin and because of the basic sinfulness of the world around him, including his covenant people that he was charged with leading. He knew what it was like to worry, to struggle, to face hardship. I love the honesty of the Scriptures, both about David's high points and his low points. 
And in this, this mirror of the Word, we see ourselves. We often have days or even seasons where life seems to be relatively easy, tranquil. On the other hand, we have had plenty of days, if we've lived long enough, where the waters are choppy. And rather than placid and rather than being tranquil, they feel threatening. And it does us well to be honest about our lives whenever we face such seasons. We are in one now as a church, and this affects all of us. Kyle and Naomi's loss of their son, the death of Asa Warren is a stark and shocking reminder that this world is not quite right. And those of us who know them well love them and we grieve alongside them. But even if you don't know them well, even if you are not intimately connected to them, you bring your own grief and trial to the table today. Scary health diagnoses. Insufficient funds to take care of your family. Volatility in the marketplace. Worry about the future of your family and of our nation. Sins that you struggle with that you just can't quite seem to conquer. Losses relationally that that grip you still. Perhaps you are in the midst of undergoing loss right now. Perhaps the death of Asa reminds you of your own loss recently. And we have had plenty of that. When a baby like Asa is taken from us, it arrests our attention because it doesn't seem right. And it's a sharp, acute, piercing, and heart-wrenching reminder that the fall has affected every nook and cranny of our existence. That even the most vulnerable and precious among us are not exempt. David wrote this psalm, I'm sure, for himself. But out of his own experience, he wrote it for the community. It was addressed to the choir master so that the community could sing it. And even if they could not sing it because their throats were choked and their eyes were full of bitter, salty tears, they could listen to it. And so I call you to that today. We who grieve today for various reasons, and especially because we come alongside this family and their loss right now, let us listen to God's Word and let us grow from having done so. There are three promises in this text and two responses. The first promise we find in verses 1-6, through and it is this, the Lord knows us intimately and isn't put off by our inner struggles. 
If we were to deal with every single word in this text, it would take us weeks, and we don't have that kind of time. So we're going to take sort of an overview of the text and how we are to respond to it. So the first thing, the first promise that we find in these first six verses is that the Lord knows us intimately and isn't put off by our inner struggles. In verse 1, David says that God has searched him and known him. Knows him when he sits down, when he rises up, the normal stuff of life. And he knows David's thoughts, every single one of them. Nothing escapes God's attention or his knowledge. He knows when David walks. He knows the trajectory of his life, verse 3. He knows all of David's ways, verse 3. Even before David speaks, verse 4, God knows what he's going to say. And yet, despite all of this, verses 5 and 6, God remains near him, postured toward him with loving kindness, with attention, with favor, with a smile. David's response to this in verse 6 is that he can't quite believe it. It seems too good to be true. We all have these inner struggles. For a lot of us today, for Kyle and Naomi, for Rick and Karen, for the rest of the family, the inner struggles are somewhat easy to discern. Sorrow, confusion, perhaps anger, fear of what is to come. And for those of us who love them, we feel these same thoughts. Rich's prayer a bit ago captured that so well. But we all bring our own struggles today. Perhaps you are struggling in your parenting, acutely so. You don't like who you are right now because of your anger, because of your lack of patience. You don't know where your kids are headed exactly and that that worries you or maybe even freaks you out. Perhaps your inner struggle is that when it really comes down to it, you are far from God. You don't like Him right now. You don't agree with the decisions that He's made for your life. Perhaps for some of you, when it really comes down to it, you're far from God right now because you're harboring sin in your heart. You are allowing things, thoughts, attitudes, and even behaviors that dishonor God, and you know it. And you're ashamed. But the beauty of this text And I I feel like David in verse 6. It doesn't feel like it's actually true. That in our pain, sorrow, and doubt, and anger, and lust, and shame, that God is not going to step away from us. He's not going to keep us at arm's length He knows it all. He is never, ever caught off guard by an attitude, by a position, 
by a behavior, by a thought, by a struggle, by a trial. He's never surprised. And He never, ever runs away from us. He's so unlike us. We tend to project onto God our own fears, our own behaviors. When people disappoint us, when people do things that we don't like, when people do things that we are ashamed of, we we tend to distance ourselves from them. And if we're being honest, to, to reverse it, We are afraid that if we are fully known by those around us, even the most intimate of relationships, spouses, children, best friends, that if people really knew everything we thought, and they really knew everything that we were, that they would abandon us. But the wonder of this text is that the God who dwells in unapproachable light, who is perfectly holy, who hates sin and must punish it, relates to us not based upon our merits, not based upon our inherent goodness, but relates to us through love because of Jesus Christ. The reason that God, who is three times holy, can relate to us despite our frailty and despite our sin is because Jesus makes it possible. I love the story of the prodigal. This first picture that you'll see behind me was painted by a man named John Swan. You may not be able to see it real well in detail. The figures in relief, the sort of white-gray figures, are swine, pigs. And this is the prodigal, whenever he finds himself in deep misery. He's bowed down. I love this painting. He's coming to the end of himself. He is in the midst of great peril. He's brought it upon himself, but the world around him is hostile, and he is in the lowest of conditions. If you know the story of the prodigal from Luke's gospel, the prodigal comes to a conclusion It would be better to go back to his father that he has shamed than to dwell there among the pigs and eat their food. And so, the next painting is by a much more famous man that we know as Rembrandt. This painting hangs in St. Petersburg. This is the return of the prodigal. Rembrandt painted this toward the end of his life within the last couple of years before he lived He spent about 30 years sketching and painting various iterations of the prodigal story, and this was the finality. Again, you may not be able to see it super well, but you see darkness over on the right side of the frame. The person that you can see just barely over on the right side of the frame is the older brother. His hands are crossed. He is stern because he wants justice. But on the left, and you see in the light, the prodigal, his head is shaved, his shoes are worn, his clothes are in tatters. He has nothing to offer, and yet this father, who is tender in mercy, runs to him and embraces him and forgives him. 
One art historian has said that if you were to see this painting hanging in St. Petersburg, you might be forgiven for claiming it as the greatest picture ever painted. It's been said that this, of all of Rembrandt's paintings, is his most moving. It reminds us of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So whether we come to the Father today in shame, or whether we come to Him in our grief because of the sorrow of other people, we believe that Jesus meets us in our desperation and makes us acceptable to the Father, and He is not ashamed of us. He does not frown upon us. He hymns us in behind and before, and like the prodigal's father did in his desperation, He places His hand upon us. He does this because He is love. And so our first promise for today is that the Lord knows us intimately and isn't put off by our struggles. Verses 7 through 12 give us another promise. The Lord is with us even when all that we sense tells us otherwise. David knew what it was like to wander, both literally and metaphorically. He had to wander around escaping Saul's treachery. He had to wander around escaping his son Absalom's treachery. But even worse, David often wandered in his own heart. But he writes for us how we might respond to such periods of wandering. He says in verse 7, "'Where shall I go from your spirit?' Where can I flee from your presence? Even if I go to heaven, you're there, or in Sheol. So, as high as you can go or as low as you can go, you're there. If I go, verse 9, to the place of the east where the sun rises, or to the place of the west where the sun goes down, you're there. If, verse 11, the darkness seems to be covering me, if all I can see is darkness, if I cannot even see a beam of light, you're there. Because darkness is not dark to you. To you, everything is bright. And darkness is as light with you. The Lord is with us even when all that we sense tells us otherwise. So for Kyle and Naomi today, who have suffered great loss, for Rick and Karen, for the rest of the family, even though your senses may tell you that God is distant, He is not. We have some experience with this as a church. The hardest parts of our ministry and the years that have gone by have been the loss of children. Justin and Katie Bay sit with us today. They have lost two. That doesn't happen in this day and age. Just down from my neighborhood is a cemetery where we have buried Lucas Kent, Marley Kate, and most recently 
Tom's wife, Mary. This family has experienced profound loss. We have walked beside them during moments when we could not understand God's hand, when all of our senses told us that God was distant. Just a year ago, dear to many of us, Matt and Gina White lost their 14-year-old, almost 15-year-old daughter. The day after Miriam passed away and went to be with the Lord, we went to see her parents, Matt and Gina, and in their family room, Matt, who could barely articulate this, said through tears, my sins have found me out, which of course wasn't true. But he couldn't see God's hand, and he didn't understand it. And his senses told him that God must be angry with him, because how could such a tragedy happen? Reminded of what Jesus said to the twelve when all of the crowds, called disciples, interestingly, in John 6, abandoned him. Because Jesus told the crowds, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which was metaphorical, but unless you're willing to take me and me alone and and set aside any pursuit of self-righteousness, you will have no part with me. He looks at the twelve after the crowds have departed and he says, will you leave also? And Peter, love to know the tone with which he says this, says, where else will we go? You have the words of life. So why are we here together on a, on a day of sorrow? Why do we keep coming back after such profound loss? Because we believe that even when our senses tell us otherwise, that God is with us. His Word tells us so. And if we've walked with Him long enough, He has proven it is true. I love this next slide pictures for us the way life should be, what we long for, and the way it often is. In creation, God made all things good, but because of the fall, God cursed the earth, and the ramifications of humanity's rebellion are reverberating to this day. We live in this tension, and we do not like it. And this is why Paul in Romans chapter 8 can say, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Interesting metaphor. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It is as though creation is groaning. But not just creation, we groan too. I found a series of pictures of World War I battlefields. Most of them just have subtle scars of what once was in Western Europe, but some of the sites of the battlefield have been preserved. This one is uh, in France along the Western Front where the Allies would have been fighting the Axis powers. You're familiar with this if you've seen documentaries or done any research into history. A 
movie, a really good movie, just came out called 1917. I commend it to your attention, which is about the horrors of World War I, but yet hope within the midst of it. And if you know anything about World War I, very little advance was made, very different than World War II after technological advancements and weapons and so forth. And basically, for a long, long time, for about four years, you had two large forces arrayed against each other with not too much distance in between. And they would hunker down in these bunkers trying to stay alive as they were bombarded by shells. And if they ever tried to make an advance, there was barbed wire all around them which would cut them down and entangle them. The next slide shows what remains today of much of the battlefield along that western front. This is very telling. You probably won't be able to read that red sign, but it says, Danger, Unexploded Ordnance Still Here. It's interesting because here in this picture you find these sheep grazing on this very verdant pasture. It's beautiful. I would love to sit down in such a pasture, read a book, take a nap, and yet underneath the surface there is hostility, there is danger. And that is often what our world feels like. Even if our eyes tell us that it looks safe, we know that underneath the surface it is dangerous to us. But we don't have to be overcome by the danger. We don't have to be overcome by the unknown. And this is why David likewise in Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in a dangerous world where I feel vulnerable, even though I walk through such a world, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so for these sheep who dwell in this verdant pasture, they can trust that their shepherd will guide them, and the same is true for us. One final promise we find in verses 13 through 16. The Lord has always and will forever remain lovingly in control of our days. David confesses here that he has never been apart from God, even from when he was first conceived. For God knitted him together in his mother's womb. He was fearfully and wonderfully made. It could also be translated fearfully set apart which might even be a more intense promise that from the very beginning David belonged to God and would be God's. His frame wasn't hidden from God when he was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, and even when his unformed substance was there, God had a plan for him. God wrote down in his book all of David's days when as yet there were none of them. Asa Warren's story was not what we would have chosen. It was far too short. But his story is much like ours. One of brokenness and goodness. Because Asa's death is not permanent. He is now made new, and one day will undergo the final resurrection, just like us, just like his daddy and mommy, and we will gather together with Asa 
and with our Lord and with one another, and there will be no more pain, and there will be no more sorrow, for God is with us. That is where we are going. That is our trajectory. The Lord has always and will forever remain lovingly in control of our days. There is no wet ink on the pages of your story. And that should give you hope that the God who is full of wisdom, full of power, and full of love is never caught off guard and is lovingly in control of your life. We will not always like what He chooses. But one day we will find that all that He has chosen is good. And that is what we remind ourselves of today. And this is why Jesus can say, In Matthew chapter 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? I must admit that for much of my life, I have lived afraid. Sort of geared that way naturally, but this broken, hostile world tweaks that, and I live afraid a lot of the time. Psalm 139 is a psalm that I come to again and again and again when my fears rise up and try to take control. And I'm reminded that I am not in control but God is, and He's good, and He loves me. There are two responses that David provides for us in this text. We'll go through them quickly. First of all, in verses 17 and 18, I think the first response is like a prayer, or we can turn it into a prayer. Lord, please comfort and give us hope. So, in light of the three promises, there are two responses. The first being, Lord, please comfort and give us hope. That's what David is saying in verses 17 and 18, is it not? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Because of who you are, because of what you have done, comfort me and give me hope. And this is why we come to God's Word again and again and again, to, to know who He is, to know what He promises and to respond to Him with with prayer, with a posture of dependence. So if God is all these things for us, if He knows us intimately and never abandons us, if He's with us even when our senses tell us otherwise, if He will always remain lovingly in control of our lives, we can pray to Him in faith, Lord, please comfort and give us hope. And so we pray that for those we love today who are undergoing acute loss. Lord, comfort them and Lord, give them hope. We pray this for ourselves likewise. Lord, please comfort us and give us hope. And the second response is in keeping with this. Lord, please vindicate and preserve us. David knew what it was like to have enemies, evil enemies all around him. And he knew, not only verses 19 through 22, the evil around him, he knew the evil within him, verses 23 and 24. What will God do about the evil around us and the evil within us? 
He will vindicate and preserve us. And so we pray that. Lord, if you know all the nasty stuff inside of me, and you'll never walk away. Lord, if you're with me, even when my senses tell me otherwise. Lord, if you are lovingly in control of my life, please do vindicate and preserve me. Keep me until the end. If we're being honest, there are often times where we wonder if we will make it. You ever ever think about that? In such a hostile, broken world, will I actually make it? And I think David's responses in verses 17 and 18, and then again in verses 19 through 24, are responses of faith and trust that God will preserve us unto the end. I'll put the promises back in front of you and then the responses in just a moment in case you'd like to glance at them one more time. But I encourage you in the coming days to to meditate upon God's Word. Don't be content with just a surface reading of it, but to come to the text honestly and allow it to speak to who you are and where you are. The human condition is explained in stark detail and honesty for us here. David doesn't run away from the brokenness. He's honest about it, and yet he does not stay there. He's not content with wallowing in the darkness. He comes to the light, reminds himself of what God has done in the past, and trusts him for what is to come in the future. And likewise, these two responses. Because of what God has done, we can trust him for the comfort and hope that we desperately crave and for the vindication and preservation that we desperately need. Reminded of Paul's words as we close in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, we're vulnerable. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not believe these promises naturally, but the Lord has, is, and will prove His promises to us, not despite our grief and troubles, but through them. In other words, God is not caught off guard by our grief, struggle, and trouble, but uses them to teach us of His goodness and His ever-present love. Let us trust Him together. I'm going to ask Josh to come pray for us a prayer of response, and then we'll sing together. Josh. Rich prayed earlier, and as he was praying, he said that we are often tempted to believe that God is far off and that he doesn't love us. I think in moments like these, when sorrows hit and when sin is near and when we face the troubles of life, uh, those, those lies uh, can feel very near to us. But I want to say to you this morning that you're not alone 
that you are loved, that you have a family who loves you and who is with you. And more importantly, most importantly, you have a God who loves you and is very near. He loves you with an unbreakable love, an eternal love. So let's pray together to him. God, our Father, you are so gracious and kind. And yet so often, because of the sorrows and troubles of this life, the grief and burdens that we often bear, it can feel as if darkness would cover us completely. We seem to be groping in the darkness. We can't see our way forward. We can feel like sheep walking through a minefield of danger, and we don't know what's ahead. And we often bear burdens from what's behind in our past, and we are afraid. But Father, even the deep darkness when we can't see any way forward, the darkness is as light to you. You, in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, shine brightly into the darkness and guide our steps. You are not lost when we can't see. You are near. In the danger, you guide us by the hand. You draw us and call us to yourself and you hem us in behind and before. What is behind is you were not lost in our past and you are not lost in the future. God, you go before us. You lay your very hand on us to comfort us and guide us. Your Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. And you give us peace and comfort even in the midst of the deep sorrow and the darkness. And so we turn to you this morning. We pray for those who are hurting. We pray for our church. Lord, we bear burdens and griefs and sorrow, and we cast them upon our Savior Jesus because he cares for us, because he has called us to bring our sorrows and our burdens to him and trust in him because he does care. Father, we believe that you lay our hand upon Lay your hand upon us. And we pray for Kyle and Naomi and Jeremiah and Gideon. We pray for the Rick and Karen and the family. And we ask that you would bring comfort by your very presence, by the nearness of you, by the love of you, God, that you would bring comfort, that you would give peace in their hearts, even through tears. We pray for the church that you would help us to love them well, to surround them. We pray for others who, in the midst of this sorrow, are reminded of their burdens and sorrows and the wounds that they still feel deeply, God, that you would be their refuge, that you would surround us, your people, like a shield of protection, holding us fast for all of our days ahead. Lord, we turn to you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.